This week on a lively experiment, the General Assembly will see some high profile contests this fall and a lot of Republicans in the hunt for a seat. And two months to go to primary day, where are the Democratic candidates for governor? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, Leanne Senek, National Committee Woman for the Rhode Island Republican Party, political strategist and columnist Rob Horowitz, and Ted Nisi, politics and business editor for WPRI Television. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to be back with you again this week. Well, to build a strong team, you need players and a strong bench. The Rhode Island Republican Party is hoping for both, putting up candidates in dozens of General Assembly races across the state, and it has a slate of candidates for the four open general officer seats. Leanne, let me begin with you. You were at the state convention, and uh, there was a lot of energy there last month, wasn't there? Absolutely, there was. It was uh, the best convention that I can remember. Um, not a lot of contention. Everything went very smoothly, and it was a great time to launch our candidates out um, to get their signatures and to get some excitement building for the party. And we do have a, a great slate. I'm glad that we have someone running in every position and a great deal of General Assembly candidates this time. And that's always the Key. You know, we talk to Susie Yankee off and on, we all have, um, and the building of the bench to be able to at least get toward a little bit more relevancy in the General Assembly. We don't know. We're taping on a Thursday. The, the uh, signature deadline is going to be tomorrow, so that'll shake out. But that's a, that was a big groundwork to be able to get that many candidates, right? It was, and I, I think a lot of it was work that the party put in, but more so it was a frustration and anger that people have with the state of uh, the state right now, with the inflation, everything going on, the bills that went through the General Assembly, the bills that didn't go through the General Assembly. People are frustrated right now, and that motivated people to, to come out and to run. And some of the Democrats, Rob, not only facing Republican challengers, but finding coming from the left flank, the progressives. So some are getting it on each side. I think that's right, and I think um, you got to congratulate the Republicans, and not just saying that because Leon's here, <laughs> um, but uh, you have to congratulate the Republicans on, on, on fielding a full field, and Rhode Island remains a, a fairly Democratic state, but if you look at the General Assembly, you've got, was it, 33-5 in the, in the Senate, 65-10 in the House, Democratic. The state's not that Democratic. So I just sort of my view to take my sort of Democrat hat off for a second. Just sort of my view as a citizen is the more competitive races. I think the primaries have been great because they've kind of opened the general assembly up to more ideas, not just not just progressive ideas, but more ideas. They've made it less top down, and I think more competition is always good. I think the Republicans, I think the stakes are high in this election for them. I mean, it, you know, it's hard to think of a cycle that had shaped up as well. You have, as Leanne said, you have you don't have primaries, which have often been tough this time of year for Republicans in the past. Alan Fung's got a clear path in the race for Congress. Ashley Kalis has a clear path, looks like, in the race for governor. You have the national environment is about as good as you could hope for for Republicans, or it was until maybe until the Roe decision, which has complicated things a bit. So I think, you know, if the Republicans can't make hay in a year like this in Rhode Island, you know, it's going to be much harder in a presidential year in 24. This is the kind of year where the Republicans should need to prove that they can not just come close, not just field candidates, but actually win those elections that they're targeting. But then there's always these studies about throw out the bombs except my bomb, right? <laughs> so you never know the power of the incumbency. But there are some open seats, too. And what surprised me, um, and Ted, you can weigh on on this, too, but 
Um, all the high-profile people, so the Senate Majority Leader McCaffrey, Blake Filippi surprised everybody, Dennis Algier, who's been there a long time, Cindy Coyne. So that opens up a power vacuum, too, doesn't it? It does, and, and it's a good opportunity. And I think you're going to see people that's a motivation to run too because it's going to open up those leadership positions so people want to get in on that ground floor and, and, and make a difference in their communities and it, it, it's it's difficult for us to see Blake step away and, and Dennis Algier step away because they were such good representatives for the party but it is opening up opportunities for other Republicans in the state so it, we have to look at that kind of silver lining in that. Do you see a thread to any of that or do you think each was an individual decision? You know, it's a good question, Jim, because I think you can almost always find individual reasons for anyone's decision in politics. But I do think there is a level of exhaustion. I talked to a couple people after Mike McCaffrey, the majority leader, announced his retirement in particular. And, and one senator I spoke with said, it's getting, it's exhausting. You know, the vitriol they're getting as lawmakers on social media, um, it feels like things are always so heightened. We've gone through such an exhausting period, the, you know, contentiousness of the Trump era, then the pandemic, now the inflation crisis. Um, I think there is a sense of exhaustion among some uh, lawmakers up there who maybe would have stayed longer. I mean, we were all shocked to see Blake, who was seen as one of the big rising stars in the Republican Party, walk away. Um, again, not to say he's walking away from politics forever, but even from his position in the House, you heard more Democrats than Republicans stood up to praise his, his mm. approach to lawmaking, but he's, he's stepping, I think, I think Blake's only 41. Are you hearing anything about a judgeship for McCaffrey? I, I have no doubt he's interested, um, and it, it wouldn't surprise me, particularly if Donnie Ruggiero is still Senate president. That's the other because thing. Because that was going to be the succession, and then Ruggiero's like, I'm not going anywhere. Right, right, soon, but then right? Senator Archibald probably wants one, too. There's going to be a long list of people who might want a judgeship. There's always a long list of people who want a judgeship, Jim. I, you know, I, I hear everything that Ted just said, and, and I think some of it is it's, it is getting exhausted. On the other hand, you can look at it another way, which is the state's never been this flush with money. A lot of that's federal money. I'm, I'm talking about the government. It's such an opportunity if you're a, particularly if you're a Democrat lawmaker, since I know you Republicans don't want to spend a dime, um, <laughs> to sort of shape policy. It was a, on the budget side, it was relatively smooth. It is a social media environment, it's tough. Um, my guess for, Sen for Senator McCaffrey, he just made a personal decision that he, for him it would be, do I want to stay another six, eight years and be, you know, and be Senate president? Do I want to take that on? So I guess I think that was more his decision. But so with all of what you talked about, it's, it's a little bit easier time. Does that make you surprised that a lot of people left despite that? I, I'm, I was, I'll tell you, I, was, I, I am a little surprised um, that there's some people left, but, but, but they've also been there a while. After you do 10 years, 12 years, 14 years, it's, it's um, we, we criticize our legislators and they deserve it a good portion of the time. It's a pretty heavy lift, especially on top of if you also have a, have a full-time law practice or a job. You're talking especially you know, major hours. if you're in leadership, you know, and, and which, which leadership. you know, they often, you know, they know, those folks know that nobody feels sympathetic to them, so they're not going to say it publicly. But they, they say, you know, this gets close. This can be a full-time job the speaker or more. And the there is no off-season anymore. Exactly, right. exactly. And there's this expectation all year. I think also with, you know, to what Rob is saying, it's, it's, and what you're saying, Jim, it's, it might have been easier this year, but I don't even know if it's still going to be easier next year. With infl I mean, the budget writers were saying, just as inflation is, is pushing up state revenue, it's pushing up state costs. So as soon as next year, the budget um, writing process can be much tougher. So before we move on, let me just ask you, once all of the signatures settle out and whoever is going to be running, 
what in your mind do the Republicans have to stress? What do they have to pound in these races? Now, each there are there are nuances to each local race, but statewide, what do they have to focus on? The economy. It's it's what's on everybody's minds. Everyone that we're talking to, that's the feedback that we're getting. That people are just not being able to afford everyday things, groceries, gas, all of those things. So whatever relief they can provide, I mean, if, if I were going door to door to people, I would be saying the first vote I would be taking would be to, to suspend the gas tax. The, the governor could have the opportunity to do that through executive decision because he just extended the uh, emergency de uh, declaration. He hasn't done that. The General Assembly didn't do that in the budget. And, and that would provide immediate relief to everyone in the state across all demographics. So that's a big issue. And I think that's the biggest thing they can talk about is putting more money into the pockets of Rhode Islanders. And then the Democrats have to do what? I think they have to, and I think you do want to make them individual races, as you just said. I think the Republicans have a clearer statewide message. I think there's no doubt about that. But there's a tremendous amount of accomplishments that occurred this year. And if, if you're an incumbent legislator, you have a lot to brag about in terms of climate, which people care about. Um, you also have the choice issue, um, even though Rhode Island is codified, which is which is going to be a significant issue at the margins. Um, so, and, and you have affordable housing, which is a huge issue in the state. So, so there's a lot of any sort of legislator can take credit for um, who's an incumbent for a lot. I do wonder too, Jim, if you know 2018 shouldn't have been such a bad midterm necessarily on the on paper for the Republicans because the economy was doing quite well, things were pretty stable, but of course President Trump and the contentiousness he caused led to this backlash which was which was big for Democrats and I do wonder again this year where it should be a terrible year for Democrats based on the president's approval rating the economy. There's always the swing in the midterm. Well, but right? then you have, you know, the way the Roe decision has scrambled, you know, a lot I saw the New York Times poll this week they interviewed some Democrats who said they disapprove of President Biden and they're working really hard to elect more Democrats because they're so mad about Roe, which is not usually what you expect in a year where the president's is underwater. So again, the issue mix is, I, I think, a little different than sort of a traditional midterm year. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think the Roe thing is is not going to have the effect in Rhode Island that it might have nationwide. Um, it, it's not going to play out as well. Like in a here state because, like North Carolina, which is a purple state, right? right? So, so it really could be There's not that much back balance. and forth here. We've already codified it. It's already there. And I think for the candidates running, most people, the majority, I think 75%, support some limits on abortion. So I think if we're talking about degrees of, of, of Roe v. Wade and how, how we're allowing that, I, I don't see it as a particularly losing thing for Republicans in this case. Let's move on to uh, the congressional race. Speaking of, uh, Alan Fung and Seth Magaziner look like they're out front. Uh, interesting poll, uh, Breitbart, so take it for what it's worth, but internal polling shows Alan Fung looking pretty good in this race. Yeah, you know, Fung's, there are times at this point I wonder if the Fung campaign's big risk is overconfidence because, you know, they were up six points in the Globe poll. They're... We're not talking to the media. <laughs> like he well, no, did during a... his race for governor, right? <laughs> right? Hey, he did Newsmakers last week, so he's, he's definitely being a little more open than uh, his eight Present company accepted. Yeah, right. Um, you know, that poll that uh, their consultant put out through Breitbart, they had themselves up 15 points, um, which feels a little aggressive to me just knowing the second district. But, um, you know, I think... You know, again, it's what, it's what you'd expect. He was the mayor and a popular one for all those years down there. Seth Magaziner is in a lower-profile statewide office, isn't even the nominee yet. He still has four opponents. Um, I think I think that's going to be a dogfight to the end, I tend to think. Rob wants to see crosstabs, um, right? <laughs> Any poll, show me the crosstabs. I want right? to see the crosstabs. Here's what I'd say. I think it's going to be a, it's clearly a competitive race. I would rather be 
narrowly rather, be Seth Magaziner and Ellen Fung. And here's where I think even if choice, even if Leanne's right about choice in the state races, I'm not sure she is, but it's a fair point. In, in, a, in a federal race, that's where choice becomes, becomes in a close race, could be the winning difference for Seth Magaziner. Um, if you look at, at, at polling right now, what predictably was going to happen with choice has happened. It used to be an issue that was a net advantage to Republicans, perhaps not in Rhode Island overall, because that's where the energy was. It was on the pro-life side. That energy is now flipped to the pro-choice side. You have twice as many pro-choice um, people who are pro-choice, which so is two to one still. In, in, in the public overall, saying that they're only going to vote for a candidate who shares their values um, on, on, and shares their position on abortion than you had before Roe. So it's, it's not going to be like a 20-point factor, but could it be a two, three, four-point factor? And then you get Alan Fung's clumsiness on the issue, because he's trying to be all things to all people, won't take a firm stand, and he might even lose some pro-life voters. So I, I think if you look at the race overall, I'd still narrowly, it's understandable Fung's ahead now, but he's well under 50. Um, and I'd much rather be Seth Magaziner. And the other thing is Seth Magaziner's got a ton of money, and he has yet to start to spend that. Fung will have enough money, But a money lot too. of money's going to come in on this race oh, it's nationally, both. right? It's on yes. both sides. On both sides, both. the money is, is going to start flowing in, I think, on both sides. But I think one advantage that Alan has over Seth Magaziner is that he doesn't live in the district. He can't even sign his own nomination papers to put himself on the ballot. And, and I think when you're talking about someone who's been a mayor in the largest city in that district for over 12 years and a popular mayor, that's a lot to have to overcome. Seth Magaziner doesn't have that type of personality um, to kind of be that outgoing, friendly, handshaking kind of guy. I just don't see him as that connecting with people. And right now, people are frustrated with the economy, with the price of everything that's going on. And you have a person like Alan Fung, who is more that everyday person. He's uh, much more relatable than Seth Magaziner is on that issue. And that issue in particular, I, I can't see him being relatable to people as far as how, how are you going to fill up your gas tank this week? How are you paying for your groceries? All fair points. And, and if they were running for, if Seth Magaziner was running against Alan Funk for Mayor Cranston, I think you're completely correct. <laughs> on the other hand, what's happened, as you know, and it's, 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 these races are nationalized. So it's about picking, it's about choosing, choosing your team and choosing your issues. I still remember when Sheldon Whitehouse beat um, Lincoln Chafee in, two, I think it's 2006? Six. Yep. Only a couple days ago, 2006. Yeah. <laughs> Chafee had a 65% um, approval exactly. rating. Exactly. People li liked him. 62. He was, but he was relatable. 62, I stand corrected. <laughs> I, I love Senator Whitehouse. Relatable wouldn't be his number one thing I would say about him, especially back then. Um, so I, I think it's going to come down more to what the issue selection is. The economy's clearly a headwinds for the Democrats. But if you look at, say, the generic ballot right now, it's about tied nationally. It's Republicans should be ahead. Now, Democrats, to be fair, have to be eight, nine, ten points ahead to hold the House. But if you look at that district, um, I'd still narrowly, again, narrowly, I think it's going to well, be close, rather be Seth Magazine. The other question is, I was talking to a Republican yesterday, it, what is going on with Donald Trump? I mean, you saw, you're seeing more and more reports about him potentially announcing he's running again now before the midterms. before the midterms which i'm sure there are districts where that's a net benefit or a wash I, I don't think donald trump already campaigning nationally in the midterm year is a net positive in a state like rhode island where he's he's not popular he wasn't helpful to the party over the last couple of news cycles that might not happen and it, people like kalis and funk continue to kind of say well who knows what he'll do that's a, that's irrelevant but if he's running and actively campaigning already i think Trump becomes more of a factor, and that, that hasn't been good in blue states for, for Republicans in recent years. He is the gift that keeps giving to the Democratic Party. I mean, he's the reason why the Democrats are in charge of the Senate, because mm -hmm. he screwed up two Georgia races. 
Um, if he gets in the race, I suspect he won't, but if he, because it's, it's a big risk, because then they can blame whatever happens on the midterms on him. If he mm. gets in the race before the midterms, I think that does turn it from what, what's still, what would have been still, no matter what the Democrats do, more a referendum on um, Joe Biden and inflation and those things into a real choice election, and he screws up the Republicans very much. And he's already screwed them up with, with, with all the, the election denying candidates that run around, all around the country, which gives the Democrats now, I think, a better than even money to hold the Senate. So as, as much as he is a, uh, just my, my view, a threat to the Republic, and I hope he never runs again, and if he just spent the rest of his life playing golf in Mar-a-Lago, Mar that would be the best for the country. Every time he gets into one of these things, it helps the Democratic Party. Final point before we move to the government. We can, we can speculate on what Donald Trump may or may not do and how that will affect things. But we He's do living rent-free rent -free in Rob's head he right is, now. You know. He is, but unfortunately, Joe Biden is not living rent-free. He's, he's <laughs> uh, increasing the price of rent for everybody, and we know <laughs> what he's doing. And, and that is a detriment to uh, the Democrats, what, what Biden is doing. He, he's incompetent. His policies are not working. He is, his favorable ratings are terrible. And anyone coming up in the Democratic Party is also facing the same thing. Kamala Harris is not a viable alternative to, to Joe Biden. And it, it, the same things that we can be saying about the Republicans and the risk factors that we have because of President Trump, Biden is just as much an albatross around the neck of the Democrats. See, I, th I think Joe Biden is a very good president. Obviously, his. Sorry. I, I, sorry. I know we disagree. It's okay. I know we disagree. That's fine. Uh, I, and I think he's and I think he's done a good job. If you look at Ukraine and he, and he's settled the country. And, and by the way, he, he if he does run in twenty four and lose, he'll, he'll actually concede the election. But 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 this, but obviously right now. And if you look at inflation, he's not the president of Estonia. He's not the pre, he's not the prime minister of Great Britain. Inflation's the same. Leanne wishes he was. <laughs> exactly. But they, but it's inflation is a worldwide problem. On the other hand, he is the incumbent, and and obviously if you look at his approval numbers, they're not good. And and clearly, if you look at at the trends in midterms, they're, they're just the historical trends. They're not favorable for Democrats. But there is an interesting dichotomy going on. Ted kind of got at it. Because you have the combination of the choice issue, you've got gun safety, you've got some things that push back. You would still say the Republicans are the clear favorite to hold the House. But if you look at the Senate and you look at where the races are, even though this is going to be a difficult midterm for the Democrats, they've got a really good chance to hold the Senate. To be, uh, to be continued. Uh, Ted, you made an interesting observation. Here we are eight weeks out, just a little bit more than eight weeks from the primary. Where are the candidates on the stump? I mean, so now is this an all just we're going to run our commercials, particularly Nellie Gorbea. Now, I know she's in a good spot. Elena, folks, I think was reflected in the Boston Globe mm -hmm. poll uh, up from the WPRI poll. I'm just stunned. Where are all the daily activities? Because aren't we looking for something to cover? It, it's slow it's in the summer. It's the dog days of July. You've worked in, in broadcast newsrooms too, like me. The assignment editor goes, hey, there anything has got something, let's cover it. I, we right? talked about it in my newsroom yesterday. We're like, wow, this is a day, there's not a lot of other news going on that if a governor candidate was doing something interesting, they would probably send a camera over to exactly. see what they have to say and talk to them. And I mean, I, you, that's why you and I are emailing about it, Jim. You've, you, you've got a couple years on me. I won't say how many, but you've, you've, you've many. seen more cycles in Rhode Island. And pretty much what you'd expect in July is the daily, hey, I'm, uh, you know, Secretary Gorbea is announcing with her plan for XYZ yeah. with these advocates, why she's going to fix that. And, and Talena folks will be here at this local community event talking about X. I can't think of a single 
press conference type of event Secretary Gorbea has had in her race. She's, and meanwhile, the governor, I mean, he's doing, he's being the governor every day, And that's the thing, day, I have to right? say, you know, Dan McKee, he's taken a lot of knocks, he's gotten questions about his political strategy, but they are right now running a smart incumbent race, which is basically every day his official side office has a bill signing or something where he's out there announcing, hey, money for Quonset, we're going to do more wind power. And it's just amazing that the, his opponents in such a tight race aren't even trying to get any free media right now, or, or at least not much. And then Ashley Kalis, who does not have a primary, is running as if she has one. She's out there every day. She's out there because she, she needs to get known to the people in the state, and she's doing a good job of that. She has been out there um, every day, day and night, just Small going business. and going. I going. see her all over Small businesses, uh, events, everything. Um, so she's really out there working it. And when, when you bring up Nellie Gorbea, and the first thing that she did was put out this ad, and the first thing she said was, we're going to raise the corporate tax rate. And we're looking at an environment where we're at 9.1% inflation. Businesses are struggling to survive. Um, we have supply chain issues. We have cost increases. And to come right out and say, the first thing I'm going to do as your governor is raise your taxes on corporations, that's going to get filtered down to everybody in this state. Um, so it just it was tone deaf to me, and I think that was a big mistake on her part. I'm actually curious what you think, Rob, is a Democratic strategist in that, because I know that polls well with Democrats, but it also is giving people like Leanne Fodder it's, it's to say... It's the wrong time. There you go. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a close call. I, th I think it's probably the wrong time to talk about any, well, any kind of... money. Any, exactly. Any, any, any kind of tax increase. There's really no reason to do it. I, I would say if you look at the governor's race, I hear, the, and, and fair criticism of Wolf Corbea and Falks, and in, in not, in not, in not um, doing more daily events and not doing more events to, to generate media attention, particularly local television coverage. On the other hand, if you look at who's gained since this campaign started, and it's, it's based on her advertising, it's folks. When I look at that at, at, from the Channel 12 poll, as, as Jim, as you mentioned, to the Suffolk Boston Globe poll, she picks up 10. Everyone else basically stayed where they are. If I'm looking at that poll, I say, you know, she's, she's <laughs> headed up like a rocket ship. <laughs> And these other folks are both stuck exactly roughly yeah, but within why the margin of error. you want to play off of that and then be on you, the nightly you news? You absolutely should. All I'm saying is, and, that, and that's a, I think that's a fair criticism, and, and, and they should do that. Maybe they're, she's a new candidate. Maybe they don't want to create opportunities for mistakes. I don't know why they're doing it. But if you look at what they're doing, it, it's working. And my original theory of the case, which was wrong, and I'm wrong at least 10 times a day, was that McKee was going to be the, a big benefit from incumbents because things were going to get better in the mm. country, et cetera. The vaccine, within, the economy, I thought the same, that. I thought the same thing. But yeah. with inflation and everything else, he's got a much trickier path to the nomination than I thought he was going to have. He, he's, he's finally started to outline some of his accomplishments because he's pretty much a blank slate, and his numbers for an incumbent, middly an incumbent, inherited the seat are relatively weakish. So I, if, if I'm looking at this race, I don't know who will win it. I think it's race very competitive. But, but just, just in terms of who's gained and who, who could continue to gain, and also because she's a businesswoman, so she can almost be outside the... the if she, she plays it right, right, she can be outside the sort of traditional thing and say, I know something about the economy. I'd look out for her just just watching the race so far. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think I don't know where the Democratic primary is going. Like I said, I, I'm, they're not even doing that much in a lot of ways. Which, as and I said, everybody's which, checked out in August. Yes, I mean at least there's a little bit of you know people are on vacation, but in July, okay, some people are still hanging around. And that's the thing. The calendar's almost half as long as it 
looks when you're talking about the Rhode Island primary schedule because, same in Massachusetts, because these are such quiet, tuned-out months. It's like you miss half the people if you do an event uh, I, each week. That, I think that's, if you look at actual research, that's somewhat overstated. 10, 15 percent of the people are away. Most people are home, so the TV ads she's doing, which is how she's going to mainly drive her message. They have are, to stay home, Rob, because the hurt. gas prices are so high. Oh, exactly. And inflation, right? So that it's actually benefiting the, uh, the candidates. Exactly. And Ashley Kallis is going to wave her magic wand, and there's going to be no, when she's Gas will be two dollars. It's actually fortunate that the, for them. I mean, it's not a lot of days, but the primary is the thirteenth. Yes, as yeah. opposed to so you got a little bit. Well, of time yeah, after. that's true. Well, and far, to be clear, far be it for me to talk down summer TV ratings. I want everyone to watch the news still all, all year long. <laughs> but uh, I just know what the numbers are. Uh, they the do go down. The ratings do go down. Ted's got the but inside. Yeah, yeah, but um, you know, I remember in 2020, I was covering the Joe Kennedy Ed Markey primary, and that year because of how the scale worked out it was September 1st. Talk, now that, you didn't even get, they're at least going to have this very intense opening to September before the vote. Uh, the other thing that we have, we don't know is how much is all the changes to how you vote going to be different? How many votes are going to get cast in August? Will a lot of people go to early August person 24th, voting? August 24th, early voting. Yep, will a lot of people do the non-emergency mail ballots now? Or will most people post, well, somewhat post-COVID, shift back to in-person Before we day. go to outrageous, final word on the governor's race. Uh, I just think that they all need to pick up their digital game. Um, we're talking about commercials airing. Um, a lot of people stream now. Um, a lot of people watch Netflix and, and things without commercials. So they're not necessarily reaching the audience that they think that they're reaching. So they've, they've got to really pick up that digital side of it, too. Yeah, every, it's like, it's like every polling with one. landlines. That's changed, that's changed <laughs> a yeah. lot, hasn't it? All right, let's do uh, outrageous and or kudos. Rob, let's begin with you this week. I have a kudo because... Jim, I know you love the kudos. I love the kudos. I love the kudos. <laughs> um, but it's kind of a kudo that will have a little outrage to it. But uh, So my kudo is to Liz Cheney. Because um, <laughs> uh, I want to praise Republicans for it. Um, John F. Kennedy said Profiles and Courage was a short book for a reason. Not that many politicians are Profiles and Courage. And the whole sweep of the U.S. Senate you know, in 1958, he had eight people. She's a Profile and Courage. She's... She, she's risked and lost her position in the House leadership. She's, because of the principled stance she's taken on the January 6th committee and on Donald Trump, she's a decided underdog in a race she would have otherwise won very easily in Wyoming. She's really sort of um, put herself on the line and put the country first. All right. Leanne, what do you have? I have an outrage. Um, the story that just came out yesterday that Tim White actually worked on with Eli Sherman about the uh, Department of Labor and Training, $98 million worth of fraud. Um, is what they know right now. The auditor has suspects uh, $550 million on top of that in fraud that was paid out during the height of the, the pandemic. And it's just incredible that people were able to perpetrate that much fraud. It, because we had a system that was antiquated, because we lowered the safeguards, um, these things happened. I, I just want to know what are the safeguards that are in place now? Where is the recourse to get some of that money back into the state? A lot of it went overseas. How are we auditing this? How are we going to find out who received this money, where it went? There should be some way to trace it. They so know the it was deposited somewhere. In the Equifax breach, they said a lot of the bad guys were just waiting, kind of sitting and waiting for right. something like this. So I, many of you got those letters that somebody's filed. And I got one, okay. yes. Mm -hmm. yep. So what, they, what blew me away was... They sent me a letter with my full Social Security yes. number, and in that same envelope was somebody else 
that they stuffed in my envelope, I had her social security number. So DLT's like, well, we need to upgrade the system. It's absolutely unacceptable. And I know they're working on it, but this is what happens. This is what right? happens. And, and now you're talking about changing systems for voting and going to possibly electronic voting, going to, you know, all, all these different things. We've seen disasters in the state with UHIP. Um, we don't have a good history of rolling out new technology and seeing what can happen when we don't do that and we don't take responsibility and accountability for that, it costs taxpayers money. All right, Mr. Nisi, you have the last minute. Uh, uh, I will do an outreach. I, there was a report uh, earlier this week about a 10-year-old girl who um, had had to go over state lines to get an abortion because she was raped, but at first um, a lot of people were talking about it. It was based on one doctor, and, and a lot of national pundits started to say this story maybe was make up, it made up. And then there was only one local reporter from, I think, the Columbus Dispatch who was in the courtroom when the arraignment came that revealed this was true. And to me, it was just a good example of there's so many people now getting paid to just sort of to punditize, just as we are today, I guess, but just to say, you know, what they think and just pop off. And fewer and fewer people getting paid to sit in America's courtrooms, of which there are so many, and take down the news and gather facts, facts that we can then debate as pundits. But the, the, we've just devalued that collecting of facts, and I think it's really doing more and more damage to civic culture. Yeah, and no apology from the Attorney General either. No, no like apology for you was one of them. Yep. Okay, folks, that is all the time we have, Ted. It's great to have you back. And Rob and Leanne, good to see you. Folks, it's busy, even though we are in the dog days of August. We will have all of it covered. We hope you come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. Experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.